just might get us working on those ESP32 projects again, Brent. There is a really slick write-up about a privacy-friendly ESP32-based smart doorbell using Home Assistant for local integration. This guy ripped out his Amazon Ring doorbell and built himself a little device for probably just 30 bucks in parts total and then has it streaming to his Home Assistant instance. And there's just, there's a world of possibilities with these little ESP32s. Like, I know we thought of a lot of ideas, but how do we not think of this one? Because you've had that device on your door there that you've hated for so long. It seems like an obvious choice. I know, I know. I like to have a whole security solution. Every square inch of Jupes has got to be monitored at all times. (laughs) I do find it a little amusing that uh, nine-tenths of the parts list still come from Amazon. Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hello, gentlemen. Well, coming up on the show today, we'll make the case why we think Linux might just be the best darn platform to protect your privacy. And we'll give you some recommendations for private and secure tools from your chat to your DNS and more. And perhaps most importantly, I hope, give you some ammunition to advocate for taking privacy seriously in your local family group, social group, whatever it might be. Maybe give you some tools for discussion and whatnot. And then we'll round it out with some boosts, some picks, and more. So let's say good morning to our friends over at Tailscale. That's a mesh VPN protected by WireGuard. Links all your machines directly to each other. Builds a flat network in seconds. We love it. It's going to change your networking game. We don't have any more inbound ports on our firewall. So go say good morning and try it for 100 devices for free at tailscale.com slash Linux Unplugged. 100 devices for free and unlimited subnets, tailscale.com slash Linux Unplugged. Well, boys, you're back. We're not live this week because we did a little late start because Wes literally just got in from the other side of the country. Yeah, thanks for waiting for me. Thank you for making it up here because it's like a two-hour drive-ish from the airport. So it's a long drive. must go on. That's true. And Brent's back and uh, better than ever. Am I? I don't feel better. This time zone change stuff is really hard. Yeah, but I mean connected better than ever right like oh good strong signal what, yeah oh yeah. i see what you're going at yeah yeah, yeah. Right. um some may remember that i ordered one of those starlink devices before i left and it's just been sitting in a box for the last two weeks and uh it turns out it's great chris you've been trying to convince me for well since i moved out here to get this and of course you were right so thank you there's a fantastic sale, so it's a great opportunity and yeah it's a much better connection than lte that's for sure and now you're you're Linux all the way through. You're a Linux laptop uh-huh. connected to a Linux Starlink dish connected to Linux satellites, which go to Linux ground stations, which are routed through a Linux running network, which is then connected into our Linux powered studio. I feel so proud. So that's pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty great. We may have a meetup in Chicago. I say may because I think we're looking to see if there's enough interest. So check meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Alex is going to be in Chicago for DevOps Day. And he's thinking maybe August 10th. Meetup.com slash Jupes Broadcasting. And, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll see. It's last minute. So if you're, if you're in Chicago, do it for us. I mean, I wish I could be there. Yeah. You got to go and show some interest. So ultimately this week, we really, we really want to talk about privacy and, and, and cover some tools that we can personally attest and, and recommend. And there's so many ways to kind of get into this topic, but there's a new story this week about the UK government and a new mass surveillance law. And I'm sure those of you listening over there are probably pretty familiar with this, but it's called the online safety bill. 
If the online safety bill becomes law, the EFF argues that the bill would, quote, require content filtering as well as age checks to access erotic content. It also requires detailed reports about online activity to be sent to the government, end quote. And there's always been this push. We've seen it here in the United States, several attempts to build in the ability for the government to access things like Telegram messages and iMessage and WhatsApp, and they want to have keys to get access to it. And of course, the technically literate have always argued that if you build a backdoor in for the government, it could likely be exploited by a bad actor or some other nefarious purposes. But there has been this push over the years to come up with legislation that gives the government access in some lawful mechanism. And there's different people on either side. UK's Minister of Culture said that, quote, the House of Lords reviewed the EFF's letter and said that, quote, we expect the industry to use its extensive expertise and resources to innovate and build robust solutions for individual platforms and services that ensure both privacy and child safety by preventing child abuse content from being freely shared on public and private channels. So they kind of don't really have an answer when the EFF sent them a letter raising the concerns about privacy. It's a sort of a hand-wavy answer that says, well, we expect these platform providers to be able to come up with a solution that solves this problem. We don't know what that solution will be. And we're not funding that solution. Right. Well, we assume that they will come up with some solution. I remember about, I think it was two years ago now, Chris, Apple tried this very thing. Did they not? And they tried to do a clever way to... Uh, you know, screen for a lot of this content that they're suggesting they're going to be searching for. And how did that go for Apple? I mean, it went pretty poorly. Yeah. Back backlash. There's that, the CISA scanning or whatever it's called. Yeah. And then a few years before that, there was quite an attempt by uh, FBI director Comey to get access to iMessage encryption after I think it was first the Boston bombing. And then there was another sort of state terrorism case that they tried to get access. Ultimately they just went with an Israeli agency that could just crack the iPhone. And then they relented on their pursuit to Apple, but that's because they got access to it from another means. There's just a real strong drive. You know, these agencies have a responsibility to deliver results. And I think they view these encrypted personal messaging services as hindrance to them getting to the bottom of what they consider to be a very serious matter. Yeah. It feels like we kind of skip the, the balance of, well, Okay, we understand that, yes, maybe this would, in, in theory, if everything executed right and you were doing what you promised you could do, perhaps add some degree of safety in some sense. But what about the, you know, the trade-off of being in a society and determining, you know, like what risk we want to enable the kind of society we want to live in? And I think this is where I want to start talking about a position that I've been wanting to take on the show for a while. And it's, it's such a hard topic to talk about, but I really believe that privacy is a fundamental human right. And you'll often hear people argue, well, I have nothing to hide. So why do I care? Right. It's sort of I'm, I'm blase fair about it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm online already. I'm on social media. Why do I, why do I really care? Well, I wanted to play a clip by Andreas Antonopoulos that talks about privacy and why it's such a fundamental right. To what extent do we have a right to privacy in our financial lives? Should we be incentivized to be public? Does privacy perpetuate or enable injustice? That's a great question. Privacy is a human right. It is also the fountainhead for all of your other human rights. If you don't have privacy, you don't have freedom of expression, you don't have freedom of association, you don't have freedom of assembly. I saw a really stunning picture, which was this week in Hong Kong. They're protesting against the extradition 
uh, law that China is trying to pass so they can extradite dissidents to China and disappear them into the gulags. And so they're protesting really, really hard. But they learned. Last time they did protests, they used their subway cards to track who went to the protests. So this time they had lines of people lining up with masks on so they can't do facial recognition in the stations, buying tickets with cash and using paper tickets that are untraceable. They learned an important lesson. Without financial privacy, you don't have political rights. And this happens all around the world. It can happen here just as easily. So it's a fundamental right. We should not incentivize people to make their, fi their private financial information public. Because what happens is the people who are powerless will be forced to make their information public. And the people who are powerful, who for centuries have maintained their financial privacy, including criminals, will elect to remain private. They will put their bank accounts in Switzerland. You can read their names. They're in the Panama Papers. You remember when the Panama Papers were released and we found out that the world's financial elite had been stashing trillions of dollars in foreign bank accounts and then all of them got prosecuted and half of them went to jail? Oh, no, they just killed the journalist who wrote the story and no one went to jail, right? So you think they're going to give up their financial privacy? No. It's up to you to decide if you want it. And does it perpetuate or enable justice? Justice is a fundamental requirement for peace. Peace is not the absence of war. Peace is the presence of justice, as Martin Luther King said. Without justice, there is no peace. Well, gentlemen, the question that always comes to me when I'm thinking about this topic is, who are we trying to stay private from? Because, as we'll see, we have a massive list of tools, and there's an even massiver list of tools that we're not even going to touch on. And the question for me always comes down to how much effort you put in versus, you know, what your, I suppose, threat model, if you want to use some of the more modern terms to look at this. So what do you think of that? Who are you trying to protect yourself from? And that's a question you can't really answer, because I think one of the fundamental issues we have today is that data collection, data that's collected today, can be used for future research and determinations as systems get more compute and more complex. So you really can't answer that specifically you could i guess you could if you want to say i'm just going completely off grid and i want zero fingerprints and i'm going to have zero presence and i suppose that's a line you could draw but i think because the problem with privacy is so broad i just try to look at it as how do i reduce my overall footprint almost like i would from an environmentalism standpoint but i apply it to privacy so how do i avoid things that might later on betray me essentially and it doesn't necessarily mean I don't use Gmail because I have a Gmail account, but I know if I'm going to transact an email that's truly private, I don't do it on the Gmail platform. And I try to use the right tool for the right job. And so my perspective on the who are you trying to hide from is more like, why not just reduce your footprint as much as possible in general? Because ultimately, the less information that's out there, the less that can be collected about you, the less that can be determined about you, ultimately, the better you are. And you can once it's out there, you can never take it back. I mean, and things have just changed so much. I think that's kind of what scares me in some of this is, like you're saying, stuff isn't getting deleted. It's getting spread widely now that we have the technology. And, you know, 100 years, what it meant to sort of have privacy and what folks could know about you, especially as maybe, a, you know, not a celebrity or a politician. It's just very different now. And I don't know all of the implications. And beyond that, it seems like we've just opted into this new era of 
default it's shared and used. And so like, I might be okay with some of that, right? Like you're saying like, it's a trade-off that I could, I, I could be okay with, but I'm not, that's not part of the discussion. It's just happening. And now we're in the era of, well, if you want to use our service, you're also going to just quietly sign up to let us use all of your data to train our fancy AI models, regardless of, you know, if, if you want that or not. The other angle I think about surprisingly often is about data breaches. You know, even you, if you have a party that you have trusted with data breaches happening, you know, every day these days, some data you thought was private can become public in a way that you never expected. So I like your model, Chris, of trying to stay as private as possible in as many circumstances as is reasonable, I suppose. And I think foundational to this discussion is it really starts with using Linux and open source because you have to be able to trust the fundamental platforms that you're going to run your applications and services on top of. And I think even just kind of taking a really broad swath at it, Linux users on average and on a whole, really regardless of the distribution they choose for 99% of them, are going to be better off than a Windows 11 user or the average Android user or Mac or iOS user because there's just a lot less pre-installed vendor applications that all have analytics and monitoring and look at all the stuff that Microsoft monitors on windows 11 or on the iOS platforms. Apple just loads their apps by default on there. Their photo software that auto backs up to the cloud, their note software that auto syncs to the cloud and they continue to add more features. So even if by some chance you didn't just start using these apps by default, like the notes app and the, the photo app and the calendar app. Even if some, by some chance, you didn't just start using the default apps, they're always there. They're always getting new features. They're always kind of nudging you to use them, always asking for you to start using them. And Linux users, you know, you could install Pop! OS or Ubuntu or whatever it might be. And yeah, maybe there's some, maybe some really basic analytics on the system at worst. And so I think just as a base average, if you're starting with Linux and open source platforms and you're keeping them relatively up to date, that's a good starting point right there. Yeah. It's, you know, there's the technical side of it, of just like what exactly is collected and sent. But then as you're saying, there's something about the, the, just the culture of, you know, if you're opting into these tools, you kind of flip the default and now, you know, you're, you're often asked, you're presented, even if it is a default, you're still kind of told that it's happening feel like that's a healthier way so that when you do then install whatever proprietary software you do need to run, maybe you're already thinking about those things or those features and problems stand out more. Yeah, it's more opt-in. Linode.com slash unplugged. Head on over there to get $100 in 60-day credit. It's a great way to support the show and kick the tires for real while you're checking out the exciting news that Linode is now part of Akamai. So all the tools that we love, like their beautiful cloud manager, that API with all the libraries and documentation, command line client that I use on the daily, all the stuff that I love that we've used here at JB to build and deploy and scale, all that's available, but now they're combining it with Akamai's power and global reach. They are the top tier network and they're expanding their services to offer more cloud computing resources and tools while still giving us that reliable, affordable and scalable solution for a business, a project, or an individual of any size. I've recently just deployed a new IPFS podcasting node on Linode, and my math is really simple. The moment something benefits from having a public IP, I don't deploy that on my LAN. I'm putting that up on Linode, and it's so quick and so simple to get started. I did an Ubuntu LTS for the software I'm running, and it's like just a few clicks. And as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, 
They're expanding the data centers in more locations, giving everyone more access to more resources and help everyone grow your business or your project or whatever it might be. Maybe it's just a hobby. So why wait? Go experience the power of Linode, now Akamai. Go to linode.com slash unplugged to learn how Linode, now Akamai, can help you scale your applications from the cloud to the edge. It's been great for us, and I know you're going to love it. Linode.com slash unplugged. Now, it comes to the practical side of things. If you do want to start minimizing your footprint, you're probably going to need some non-standard tools. We wanted to try and create something of a definitive LUP episode that would, like, talk about the tools that we use to try to implement these. I don't know if that's possible. Probably needs to be something of an ongoing discussion because these things are going to change. Hopefully there's going to be some new and better tools out there. And I imagine there'll be some audience feedback that'll uh, add to our list. I know one topic I've wanted to dive into, I was playing with a tool here, but it's DNS. I'm relatively new at seeking out privacy over DNS. And I know, Chris, you've been running a high hole for, what is it, years now. And I just recently dug my toes into that tool and I was kind of amazed. And now I feel really inadequate for not having used it for so long. But maybe we should explain how to get more private with DNS and what the tools might be. Can you guys fill us in here? I'm, I'm kind of new in this area. I think it, it, we don't really think about the information we are revealing with our DNS queries. But every app you use, every website you use, everything on your network is constantly doing DNS queries. And you can build a pretty decent profile of what a family or a household or a business has behind that firewall just by monitoring those DNS requests. And, you know, often by default, you're just going to get whatever the, you know, maybe your ISP's friendly neighborhood DNS service. And I think we all know ISPs have a history of uh, being happy to collect our personal data. So there's absolutely a privacy aspect to it, but there's also, this is one of those picks that will not only improve your privacy, but it's going to improve your performance because just about everything from the apps on your smart television to your web browser or your banking app, they all do DNS lookups. So if you if you take your DNS server and you put it on your LAN where it has an 8 millisecond response versus a 20 or 30 millisecond response or even 15 millisecond response, you're speeding every single transaction that happens over the Internet up. And with something like Pi-hole or AdGuard, which is also fantastic, these are ones you can run on your own LAN. It'll prevent that traffic from really ever hitting your, your uh, end users, things like ads and malware and things like that. So it never even gets downloaded over the network, never even transfers, doesn't take up any uh, extra bandwidth. And Pi-hole is the one I love. I think it's really solid and it's really just using bind and basic Linux tooling under the hood. And it's really easy to understand what it's doing if you've ever used any of those tools. But there is Next DNS that I've heard recommended to us, which is kind of this, but on the internet, you set your network to resolve to next DNS and then you log in and you can have filtering and block malware and adult content and all that if you want using next DNS, which is at nextdns.io. But Brent, I'm curious, did you notice any differences with Pi-hole? Did anything not work? Because that is one caveat is you can subscribe to these blacklists and it will sometimes break things that rely on the ad networks or whatever it might be. It's a great question. Anytime you change anything in your network, things break. Uh, I, I wanted to play with this to see, to have a bit more transparency into what was happening on my network. I think if you don't have this kind of tool that's reporting, you know, some of the traffic that's happening on your own network, then you don't really know 
it's not a pie hole, but more of a black hole. And so the thing that stood out the most to me was just watching what it was filtering. You know, it, it has a wonderful dashboard that reports the highest hits and the things that is blocking, but also the, the, you know, the most sites you've visited and such. And just, I spent a surprising amount of time just staring at that, just watching it almost live. And that was really fascinating because it made me realize I have no idea what's happening on my own network. There's a lot going on. There's a lot, a lot of information through DNS. I mean, you can just ask your ISP, you know, they'll tell you that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The other thing that's kind of slick about it is it gives you a good UI to manage DHCP if you want and reserve DHCP addresses, do name resolution on your LAN, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, uh, AdGuard Home is another uh, popular one in this category. Very solid. One of the questions I had for you, Chris, then is uh, let's flip this. Have you ever had issues with yours? You've been running yours for a couple of years now, and uh, I I haven't run into any issues so far, but like it's only been a week. You know, funny enough, right around when I first started using Pi-hole, Fireside FM was getting blocked. (laughs) So I couldn't load the uh, podcasting platform we use. Uh, I don't know if it was the .fm domain or what, but it got resolved after a couple of months. But that was, and I really haven't had too many problems since then. But for show and tell, I brought in, I know, I think you've seen these before, Wes. I'm not sure if you've owned one before, but when you're on the go, we've really liked these GL iNet slate routers and the others. Mine is just a little itty bitty hotel room one. Uh, yep. I know this one well. I definitely have one. You can run it off a USB. It's got three LAN ports. It runs uh, OpenWRT on here, and uh, or their version of it. And I was told by the audience the later versions do, in fact, support TailScale. Oh, so great. If I, if I update this, I can get it on TailScale. And I have had really good experience with Jellyfin over TailScale, which could be great for hotel rooms. So I think I'm going to take this with me to El Salvador. This yeah, is going to be my El Salvador. And it also will be my AP and all that. It's nice. I mean, maybe you just need to extend the, you know, the wireless that's, that's in there already uh, or and uh, add some protection. Also nice, I find, um, just if you want to be that tech-friendly friend, you know, maybe you're traveling with companions who don't have the skill set to set one of these up and are just mm-hmm. going to use whatever is provided. Yeah, I'd always rather use my own Wi-Fi. Plus, you don't have to configure any of your devices, right? And they all just connect automatically. I, I will say I had two of those devices, the Slate, and uh, they were wonderful. Although I was using them in a way they were never designed for, which was as my main router. Don't do that. And <laughs> I burnt two of them out for that doing that. So I would not recommend as your mainstay router. Yeah. The nice part is they're cheap enough to buy yeah. a couple of them. You can have a hot swap spare. That is my second, because for a little while, when I first moved into the RV, I used it as my primary router, <laughs> yeah. too. And it, it did burn out. <laughs> you and I both. Just <laughs> terrible. Also, you guys know us, but just because we want to try to make it all in one episode, um, if you are considering a smartphone and you're concerned about the privacy implications of modern day smartphones, but you need the things like maps or something like that when you're traveling, I know this situation comes up. We all really like Graphene OS. It has been super solid. Wes and I are still daily driving it since November and um, very happy with it. You've even done like the whole new phone thing, yeah. replacement phone thing. Yeah, I didn't it. even think about switching. I'm going to, yeah, no plans to change anytime soon. And the sandbox Google stuff works really well. Just basically has the same access any old standard user app does. And it's been really solid. So I do. I def, definitely want to give Graphene OS a mention here. There's a lot of solutions for mobile OSs, but... Man, if they nailed it and they got a range of Pixel devices, you could pick up a used one on a site like Swappa or eBay. And, you know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks, you have a really solid device that'll have updates for years. It does still feel a little special to have. I mean, that's the state of things, right? It's like, I'm still a bit in awe of the quality of the experience uh, without the downsides that we've had before on good hardware. Just Yeah, yeah. 
All right, let's talk really briefly about VPNs, if there is such a thing as a brief discussion about VPNs, because this is another part of this discussion with mobile data, DNS, when you're traveling. I definitely rely on a VPN a lot more when I'm traveling. I'll often actually VPN back to the studio. Now I might use something like TailScale. There's so many ways to do this. You could roll your own, throw it up on something like Linode, use Wirecard. Uh, but I think if you don't want to self-host, I think the one that I feel comfortable recommending probably right now is the Proton VPN because I've used that before and I've used Air VPN. Do you guys VPNs go to tools for you? Do you con- are you concerned about protecting your day-to-day internet traffic? I, I kind of find them more useful as just a way to change where I'm exiting. Maybe I don't trust an ISP especially if I'm I'm traveling um or I you know I'm just getting geo-blocked or something. So I I don't know how much I endorse or or feel super comfortable with any of the, you know, uh, we don't keep logs. There's some examples out there you can try to pick the, among them, but I tend to think of it as more of a, you know, like one add-on layer that you can apply that has some, you know, some uniqueness compared to maybe you're exiting back at your home ex- ISP or use Tailscale to exit via Linode or something. And you might use all of those or two of them or, you know, combine them as you see fit in the right situation, but they can all they can all be really useful. That, that kind of describes how I do it. What about you, Brent? When you travel, are you firing up a VPN and whatnot? Yeah, I typically do. And for the reasons that Wes mentioned, just hotel ISPs and stuff, when I was traveling to Europe this time around, I didn't have a SIM card again, so didn't have my own internet I could rely on. So I was kind of jumping from hotspot to hotspot. And that gets really dirty feeling very, very quickly. And so using a VPN just as much as I can just makes me know that at least I'm popping out at a node that I'm familiar with. It's not perfect, of course. Uh, But what ended up happening... At the little brunch that I hosted with a bunch of listeners in Berlin this last week was this exact topic came up of, you know, is using a VPN in that way really makes sense considering you have things like HTTPS now almost everywhere. And so does it actually make a difference? Do you really need it? Is this an old technique that maybe we don't need anymore? Like if you're using Tailscale to access stuff that's you know, on your mesh network, that's a whole different story. But in the trying to protect your traffic, do you guys think that it's still a good thing to do? I think one nice part about it is it's sort of traditional and decently well understood. Uh, you know, when you start thinking more, breaking it down to the components, then you're thinking separately about my HTTPS connection, what's all included there. You're thinking about, you know, like, is there encrypted, you know, host host name involved? Or what about the DNS side of things? Uh, so I think the, the VPN is nice for just the simplicity. Mm-hmm. I do think my solution is more hodgepodge is I consider each tool. And so I, I frequently don't use a VPN, but I'll use a tool that I know is secure and designed privately. And for the most part, everything I do over the web and apps, I consider to be public. It is nice. I mean, especially in the, the Let's Encrypt era, that's one great benefit of HTTPS being everywhere. Yeah, I did also want to add on the um, like self-hosted VPN or especially the, you know, the fancy mesh style these days, Tailscale, Nebula, et cetera. Uh, it just ties nicely because a lot of the stuff we're talking about, one of the options is self-hosting. Mm-hmm. And the, the easier you make that for yourself, like maybe you want to run something like, you know, a pie hole. Well, you can use Tailscale to use that as your DNS server, yes. even when you're on the go in ways that were a lot harder to do before that technology was so easy. That's definitely something I think everyone should consider is it, we are now live in a day and age where your pie hole can go with you if you put it on like your tailnet or your nebula network or whatever it might be. And that, I think, could give you a lot of consistency for a name resolution on your tailnet or whatever it might be. And B, like you could have custom DNS settings and block lists that work everywhere you go. And I think that's really nice. 
So that's sort of our thought about mobile data, internet data. But one other thing, just before we completely leave phones, that is really tricky, and I think it's missed a lot, is if you're genuinely concerned about privacy, you have to realize that push notifications are a major vector of data leaking. You can use the most secure messaging application in the world, but if you're getting push notifications that expose metadata about who and when, and God forbid, maybe even a preview of the message, because remember, even if you have your phone set not to display the message on the lock screen or whatever it might be, it is entirely possible that metadata is still in the push notification, but on the client side is just simply not being displayed. So there is a lot of information. If you think about what comes through on a push notification that is getting collected probably by Google, probably by carriers and probably by developers. There's not a lot you can do here, but there is a really fantastic open source project called Unified Push, unifiedpush.org. And they're working on creating an open source push notification infrastructure system where you can elect to use a hosted one or you could host your own using a various different backends, including one that runs on NextCloud. So you could run a NextCloud Unified Push Notification app that runs your own push notification. And more and more apps are developing support for this podverse. The GPL Podcasting 2.0 app is actively working on integrating unified push support so you can get unified push notifications about live streams and new releases if you want. Well, that's exciting. And the more apps that take advantage of that, that's just one more thing that can be private. Those push notifications, I believe, are a massive leak vector. And they're probably logged by Google and Apple, too. So just think about that. We'll have links to unified push. I think it's a project that needs more community support. So I wanted to give it some some love here. We were uh, talking about you know, using the, the built-in apps. I think a, a big thing folks need is something like a, a private cloud, right? A, a place to, to put all their things, the documents, be able to access them remotely. And those, especially the ones that have broad adoption, the ones where you can get the client on your phone and it's not some like, you know, fancy, neat, nerdy, but Linux-specific tool, well, you know, those are often proprietary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of options. So maybe what would be, Maybe what we should cover is what to look for in an app. The client should probably be open source. Yeah. Uh, if possible, there's some audit that's occurred by, by somebody you trust or somebody that seems to have a good reputation. And ideally, they should have native clients for your operating system of choice. Linux, ideally, Android, Windows, Mac OS, iOS, whatever it might be. Then you look at the encryption that gets used. You look at that kind of like what's their service retention, stuff like that. I think reliability, uh, does the tool work well? Is it easy to use? There's a lot of ways to crack this. I mean, you could GPG everything up and throw it up on Google Drive if you want. But the one that keeps getting recommended to us is Proton Drive. Proton suite of tools seems to be pretty well respected. They got mail, VPN, and Drive, encrypted cloud storage, and people seem to trust that quite a bit. I have to be honest with you, though. If it's something like, you know, a wallet seed phrase or pictures of my kids... I don't know. I, I still would rather self-host a NextCloud instance because ultimately I just I just have more control over that and I'm more aware of what that instance and that data is doing. So for myself personally, I have opted to self-host that stuff. But I think Proton Drive seems to be really well respected. I, I am a subscriber and I have used it and it, it's a pretty good implementation. It would be nice to have, you know, a, a relatively trusted offering mm-hmm. because... Um, you know, just to, to try and get even a tiny amount of folks off the, you know, the big ones. Yeah. Another one that's tricky in this area is email. I have a lot of crap boxes and I have private email like on Proton. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The Bitcoin dad says that he loves simple login, which makes it really easy to set up a bunch of bogus email addresses that are in front of your inbox. And this is an open source service that's run in uh, infrastructure done by Proton and they open source the project. And so you could create vendor specific email addresses, you know, Amazon at, Oh, that's nice. You know, painpals.com. And then it would go to your main inbox, but you would know if Amazon sold that or leaked that or anything like that. Simple. I think simple login also might offer Bitwarden integration. I don't recall, but then it just creates a unique email address for every service you use. And then simple login gives you a dashboard to kind of keep track of all that and manage it. That does sound handy. And again, it's open source. Uh, we also had a recommendation that might be up your alley, Wes. Yeah, I mean, perhaps you want to consider self-hosting. There's a lot of reasons not to. Uh, but one thing on our list to check out is the simple NixOS mail server. You know, we have a mail server. We don't admin as much as we should. I'd feel better about it if it was running on NixOS. feel better about everything running on NixOS. And email is one of those things where, like, you know, it, there's the there's the side about the association with your actual address. And then there's also just the, the flow of info. It's, it's a hard thing to really have a lot of privacy if you're not encrypting your email. And then even right. then there's the metadata. Um, thankfully, you can kind of split things up, right? You could have Gmail for some things. You could have uh, a relationship with a you know an outgoing provider or someone to proxy in front of you that then you just pull and have your own long-term storage. I think one thing about email for me is so many of them, you know, if they are housed by this business, the sole business is an email, there's a lot more incentive to, you know, use that to train their AI models or use mm-hmm. that for advertising purposes. Yeah. But if you find someone that's smaller, yes, they can still see your email, but perhaps their incentives are a bit different. Absolutely. I think that's the best compromise you can make with most email. And I, I don't look at email as a secure communications medium. I regret that something like GPG over email didn't really take off. It's really a shame because that worked for me, but I think it was just too complicated. Could, I feel like it always could have been built in more to the clients too, to make it a little easier. So I've always kind of considered email as a public medium uh, just because of all the places it has to go through. But there are some, there are some ways to, to solve that, I suppose. And when it comes to calendar, I think we should touch on calendar and we'll touch on file syncing too, just while we're kind of moving out of this category. Brent, you had a solution for calendar sync. I've played with a few things uh, for a really, really long time. I did, I've done calendars and contacts using DevX5 on Android, um, which syncs to a Nextcloud server that I control, which has been really super nice. But I did recently learn about something a little different called EtiSync, E-T-E-Sync. I was doing end-to-end encrypted sync, very similar to how SyncThing would do it. So from client to client without the need for a central storage platform. And I thought that's actually a really great concept. I haven't tried it. I'd be curious if someone has, but the the concept at least I think is really powerful here. Yeah. And we'll give a plus one to DevX5 if you're syncing to NextCloud. The nice thing, if you take the time and the hassle to host this stuff yourself is then you can throw it all behind Tailscale, and then you you just only do it on the private network or all behind Nebula or all behind Tink or whatever it might be. Uh, and then it's, that's also another layer of privacy because that information isn't being transmitted over the public net. Same thing. You mentioned that really fantastic tool still that I don't know why it doesn't get the love it should from the free software community. I've been using it for years and years. It just works too well. I don't know. It sits in the background. It gets my files where I need them. Yeah, it just works and it's protected. It's secure. Uh, I've, I mean, I give that one a, a, a 100% recommend. There's even desktop clients now. Obviously, NextCloud is 
a more complete solution. So if you need file syncing plus collaboration and that kind of stuff, and these apps that we've mentioned that has this app platform that lets you create your own authentication backend for a lot of this stuff or create your own push notification platform for this stuff. It's can replace things like life 360 for tracking on maps. It's really, really comprehensive. And Nextcloud can act as sort of this central authentication and hosting platform that all of these different things can plug into. So it could be really worth your time. Uh, but if you just need the file syncing aspect of it, something like sync thing is a strong recommend. And if you just want to securely send uh, one or two files around the internet, well, then there's send, which is, I think a fork from Firefox. Remember that Mozilla project? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you can send files directly using WebRTC to each other, I believe. I'm not sure. Maybe they do an intermediate upload. We occasionally also use Magic Wormhole. We've had some great success with that if you're yeah. you know, more yeah, into the tools. There's Linux or. tools there. Yeah. yeah. Love Magic Wormhole. Another tricky aspect of trying to stay in control can be interfacing with the proprietary platforms. You know, I'm thinking things like social media, things like YouTube, things that you can't quite get away from. There's just, you know, there's just too many people. There's too much conversation. There's too much content. Uh, but you still want to have whatever control you can claw back. Yeah, or another scenario. Somebody links you, hey, look at this juicy thread on Twitter, or hey, did you see this post on Reddit? It'd be nice if there was a machine you could throw those links into that would strip away all the tracking, strip away all the JavaScript, and just show you the results without having to have a login, right? Yeah. That's what these front ends are really kind of doing. So for our list, we had a couple of requirements. They need to be open source. They need to be self-hostable. And they need to at least give you the basic functionality without having to log in. And there's a lot of options here, guys. So this is an area you could really nerd out on. But if you want a front end to Twitter, the one that seems to have the most momentum and I've used extensively is Knitter, N-I-T-T-E-R. It lets you browse Twitter content without A, having a login. You don't have to worry about JavaScript if you want that turned off. You could use something like the Tor browser if you want. And Knitter will help you generate RSS feeds from Twitter. Oh, that is slick. okay now. Mm-hmm. And again, you just you just run this on your own instance. It's really minimal. You give it a Twitter URL and it goes and gets it all for you and displays it in a much nice, easier to read, clean layout too. N-I-T-T-E-R. There is also a ton of options for YouTube front ends. Dozens at least. So if you're looking for a solution on the web, but you don't want to go to actual YouTube, FreeTube is great for that. It lets you essentially browse YouTube, um, maybe from behind a VPN or something like that. On Android, New Pipe is pretty popular and quite useful. I know I always keep it on whatever phone I've got. Uh, a nerdy little thing that can be nice too is uh, they've got a separate YouTube parsing information gathering algorithm from like uh, YT, DLP, and those, that lineage. Uh, so sometimes one breaks and not the other or vice versa. So it's nice to have that diversity in the YouTube scraping ecosystem. Yeah, you get sometimes better results on New Pipe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also a better experience for downloading videos and just kind of watching those offline. And on iOS, there isn't new pipe, but there's Yachty, I think, or Yate, Y-A-T-T-E-E, a privacy-oriented video player for iOS, TV, OS, and macOS. TV support, that's nice. That is. Chris, you sent me on a challenge a little while ago that I haven't really reported back on. Um, in the browser, you suggested a six months ago that I install lib redirect, which kind of brings a lot of these front ends into one place and does redirecting for you automatically. And I will say 
it kind of works. Uh, occasionally it doesn't, but they know that and they have like refresh buttons and stuff like that. So I would say if you're interested in just kind of tasting some of these front ends, lib redirect as a browser plugin is maybe a place to try it. How often are you uh, bypassing, you know, how often are you trying to go to the, go to the source? Yeah. How often do you have to undo the redirect? Well, <laughs> I will admit I forgot what the extension was called and I also have it disabled now. Uh, so I think <laughs> that gives you a sense of okay. <laughs> how it's been going. But I will say it is very customizable. Like you can, let's say you only want knitter. Uh, you can just leave that one turned on and turn off oh. all the others. So it's really customizable, which is actually really nice. I turned it off one day because I was like in a hurry and I wanted to... I don't know. I forget. I was trying to get somewhere and it was sending me to the front end, which was broken on all the instances that I would try. So I like refreshed five times and they're all broken. And I was like, all right, I just got to get this content. So that, you know, barring that experience, I think yeah. actually it was fairly good. Uh, Nvidia's was an, also a front end for YouTube that is quite popular and yes. works fairly well. So it has a giant list. So I would say that's a really nice place to start. Oh, yeah. So we'll put a link to Lib Redirect in the notes. And then perhaps the way to do it is just turn it on for a few of them. The ones that you're most concerned about. Try them out. Yeah. Could be a, could be a great way to go. Hey, here's a quick one. I've been playing with Aegis. Have you guys seen this? It mm. is a open source two-factor authentication app. And what I love about it is if you have a NextCloud backend, it can auto back up the whole app to NextCloud. And then if you need to reload your phone... You just get everything set up, get the app on there, and it'll just re-import that backup and recover all of your two-factor keys right there in the app. No third-party cloud required. That is nice. <laughs> that is very nice. I admitted to Wes a couple of weeks ago that I was looking at Aegis and uh, that my 2FA game is not the greatest. I just store all the 2FA in my password manager, which is kind of defeating the purpose, maybe. How do you feel about that? If anyone's not taken on two-factor authentication, is this the it place to It start? depends on the app and how much I care in the site. Oh. You know, sometimes for convenience or if it's like a business login, it's nice to have it in the password manager. Mm -hmm. And you can always have, you know, separate password vaults too if you want to have a little more security isolation. But you might also want something to bootstrap yourself to get into one of those vaults with 2FA as well. This mm -hmm. could be great for that. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's got a nice, clean UI, and I love that it's open source. There's options out there, but you want something that's free software and something you can do your own backups and check on them. So Aegis is the win for me. A-E-G-I-S, link in the show notes. And then just two choices for secure communications, which is the subject out of all this list that I take the most seriously. Because I'm thinking about it in terms of what am I going to chat, what, what am I going to use to chat with my family and my kids for you know, the five, casual ten stuff years. with trusted yeah. correspondence. Yeah, like just small stuff in there, just little day things, everyday things in in a family. You know that you just don't really want public though. And so we're thinking it's this a it's got to be open source. It needs to have whatever we pick. It should have end to end encryption. It'd be ideal if it supported like Element does unencrypted and encrypted chats, but you could do encryption by default. Like right. those types of options where the users don't really have to think about it, but they just get something that's kind of secure by default. Obviously, Element's high up there on our list, but that's a big haul to get private communications going between a group or a family or a business. Maybe a business. Maybe if you're a business, Element's probably worth it. But the one that I keep coming back to that has been such a win since we talked about it on the show is Simplex or SimpleX, which is a private and secure messenger with no user IDs, no phone number required, and it uses a really clever relay system 
to make it, it, it very, very hard, not, not perhaps impossible to track people and messages. And um, they were they were audited in 2022 by Trail of Bits. I've heard of Trail of Bits before. Uh... Yeah, it can be tricky to assess like the audit thing. I, I do think there's something to at least, you know, they seeking that out. They're engaging with the, the process. There's more folks yeah. in theory. It's better than not being audited, look. right? Yeah. I've, I'm impressed with Simplex just in the sense that it's fun seeing folks, you know, like these fresh iterations as technology and encryption technology improves both on the sense of like better security and privacy, but also just on like how convenient that can be. I think I still have maybe a couple concerns or I'd need to be like have some prepared stuff about like, here's how we use this chat here. The like, how do you, you know, like the limitations or the, the risks of, you know, you got to do your own, you know, take care of your keys or whatever else. Yeah, you got to link devices. Yeah. You can do that remotely, but obviously it's a little more ideal to just do it by QR codes in person. But that's, I mean, besides that, it, it just feels like a normal chat app that I feel like I could introduce to mm-hmm. family and they wouldn't, they wouldn't think it was weird. Yeah. UI wise. Mm-hmm. It totally is like, it's like telegram light. If you were to cut Telegram back to the really OG days. And that's the thing about these, right? Is you got to, a lot of the people I correspond with, don't listen to the show, don't install weird apps on their phone by them for the most part. Yeah. Which is, I suppose, good. This is one where I feel like people listening to this show maybe have a little influence in their social group or in their family or their place of work where maybe they could push the needle a little bit towards using secure chat like this. Like if you've got a friend group or a family group that wants to start coordinating on Telegram, you could use Simplex instead. And they got nice features coming. A desktop client is in the works. It'll be essentially a lot like the mobile client, but built for desktop. But that's going to be nice to have a desktop version. They're reworking groups to support thousands of people in groups. And they're also coming up with a self-hostable directory bot. So we could have like a Jupyter Broadcasting directory bot that could be added to a chat and you could try to query it to get like Brent's handle or whatever. So there's a team behind this that kind of has a goal to monetize via working with businesses to provide secure messaging for Uh businesses. Okay. And they believe that will sustain development for the entire project. And so that's how they kind of, I think, intend to monetize it. So they have a path. It sounds like it's not ads. It's not tracking. It's working with businesses to implement this for them through contracts. And they've got a couple of funded developers behind it. I think it's going places. I just recently watched an update for them and I really think they're addressing the feedback that people have given them. And as long as I've been using it, which has been months now, it's just iteratively been getting better and better. So I'm transitioning the whole family. It was pretty easy to set that relay up too. How are we feeling about old defaults like Signal? I'm a huge Signal fan and I converted my whole, I don't know, extended family a while ago. But how, how, what's the general consensus on that as an option here? I think there's a lot of folks who, you know, there, there's issues with the, the control, the centralization of Signal. They've obviously done a lot of good, right, in introducing some of the, the protocols that have been yeah. widely adopted beyond them. So Definitely. that's great. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it probably depends on what are your goals, what are you trying to keep private, and who are you? Because it feels like it's kind of maybe like in the Proton camp of it's, it's a service that exists out there. It's more than that. There's open source. I'm not trying to limit it to that. But primarily, it's a service that you interact with that at least has the right ideals and goals in mind. But there is some third-party trust involved. Um, and then a lot of these messaging programs require a phone number or a user ID, which, you know, we could talk about it from a privacy standpoint, but it's also just a non-starter for kids, mm. you know, or people that don't have phones. 
they they get completely left out. And so when you have a system like Simplex that doesn't require an ID and doesn't require a phone number, it means it's literally available to everyone. And uh, you can have multiple accounts too if you want. You don't have to have multiple phone numbers associated with it. So I really like that. I like that you can self-host a relay if you want, like we have chosen to do. You can also just choose to use the public relays and you're still going to be secure. This also seems it's like, you know, there's incremental things like better signal than, uh, you know, using SMS messages with Mm -hmm. them. Definitely. Now, uh, Simplex has a couple of different options for push notifications because that team also recognizes Mm. the sort of data leak nature of push notifications. And one of the most aggressive ones can, you know, it'll eat up about 2% of your battery in a day, depending on your device. Um, For me, since using my phone for private communications with my family is like the number one thing I use it for, I'm totally fine with that trade-off to have absolutely secure private messaging with private push notifications. But that's just something else to consider is Simplex has a couple of different options there when it comes to notifications, depending on your level of comfort and battery and all that. Yeah, I think I was playing with the um, one step down from that in Mm -hmm. terms of frequency. And that was, you know, it wasn't as immediate as maybe it could be, but like within a very reasonable time frame. Yeah, that's what I had used it on for 90%. I only recently just turned it up because I thought, now this matters. I want this up. I didn't turn it up because I needed to. I just turned it up because I wanted to. (laughs) Turn it to 11, Wes. We'll have links to all of this, plus really great resources like privacyguides.org, privacytools.io, and others linked in the show notes. So definitely head to linuxunplugged.com slash 522 to get all of those. And, uh, do let us know your recommendations, your your feedback and thoughts on the tools that we've picked, or any just quintessential low-hanging fruit that you think we missed, and we'll do some follow-up in next week's episode. Collide.com slash unplugged. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, I've got a treat for you. I have been there, and I have noticed over the years, I'm sure you have too, that the majority of breaches these days come from low-hanging fruit Maybe it's unpatched user software. Often now it's credential phishing. Somebody ran some ransomware with credentials on the network. And it it typically comes from the users now of all different levels on the network. And I guess it's not really their fault, right? It's the solutions that are supposed to prevent these problems. But it doesn't have to be this way. Collide.com slash unplugged. Picture a beautiful world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, things like fished credentials, they'd be useless to hackers because every OS, even Linux boxes, can be managed from a single dashboard and you can guarantee they don't connect to your apps and your network until they've passed the on-device checks. It doesn't have to be fake. It doesn't have to be imagined. It doesn't have to be pretend. There is a solution. You don't have to imagine it. This is Collide. And you can go check it out right now at collide.com unplugged. It is a device trust solution that's better. It works with the staff. It checks a device and makes sure it is trusted and secure before it can log into your apps. It's the way it should be, preventing issues before the user's even connected and help guiding them through it. Go see the demo. They make it really simple and clear at collide.com slash unplugged. It's a great way to support the show and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash unplugged. We love reading your email, so if you'd like to send us one, linuxunplugged.com slash contact is the place to go for that. Adrian sent us one, uh, asking for a little advice. I've been a sh- fan of the show for two years now, and I find fun and fascination in tinkering with every single bit of technology. 
That said, I'll be starting my four-year PhD in November, and I think I should switch up my system to be as reliable as possible during that time. What distribution would you recommend to me for use to set it and forget it for the entire duration of my PhD and with support for the whole studies program? I'm willing to wait to set it up, but I don't want anything to change during my studies. Also, no nicks. It sounds impressive, but I have no time to learn it on my own machine. Maybe I'll get an old used laptop or something to tinker with it there. Thanks for the advice, Adrian. I think any of the long-term support Ubuntu-based distros could be uh, an easy answer, and you're not going to go wrong there. I also think you might put some thought into backups, restore, uh, snapshots, depending on your level of comfort and skill, um, being familiar with, you know, if you want reliability, having an easy practice path to say, you know, oh, something changed on my system that I don't like. I need to get my work done right now. How do I go back to a known state? Because I don't really need that update. That's a, that's, that is, yeah, that's the number one recommendation. Yeah. Because when you're a new Linux user and you're like, you know, Adrian here in the middle of trying to get a PhD, um, when things break, you're not in a place to be like, okay, this is a learning opportunity. Let's tinker with this <laughs> right. for two days and figure out why it broke. You are in a position of, I need to get this working again as fast as possible. And the fastest way to resolve this new weird issue I'm having is to reload the distro. And there's no shame in that game because I'd rather you do that than switch back to Windows. So I think Wes's point is a good one is whatever you switch, just make sure your, your restore and recovery practice is good. And then you can even just keep up and stay current if you want to. Then you could consider something like Fedora. If you're really looking for low and slow and just let it ride, something like an LTS will go for five years, you know, and SUSE has equivalents. I mean, hell, even you could make a desktop out of CentOS stream. But I think something like an Ubuntu LTS or a Mint is going to be a kind of middle of the road answer, but you're not going to go wrong. Like nobody's going to get fired for recommending that. Yeah, well targeted by, you know, a lot of different uh, software that you might need. Um, it also sounds like you kind of already have some good discipline around like how you're using your system, uh, you know, so playing around more with having easy containers or virtual machines so that if you are trying to make some quick modifications, you don't do that on your main system. If, if it's not easy to roll back, um, that can be, that can be a nice way. Or just, as you say, have a whole, um, a tinker machine and a, and a work machine. Might I recommend the opposite here? I, I, I'm tempted to recommend the thing I'm using, of course. Uh, but ButterFS rollbacks with... OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, just a rolling release that just keeps on ticking. Uh, that's been surprisingly good to me. So I yeah. might suggest that as a temptation a bit more in the risky category, perhaps. I kind of like it, though, because you get a more modern set of drivers. So, you know, if you got a laptop you already own or something like that, you're going to probably have a better time with a newer kernel. Mm -hmm. And then the one thing that's really been true for me, having used Linux on the desktop since 97-ish, the ones that have remained the longest functional installs have been the rolling distros. And so if your ultimate goal is to set it up once and you're willing to roll back or fix it from time to time, I think there is some logic to tumbleweed there. Especially, you know, maybe it depends a bit for me sometimes. Like if it's a system that I only use sometimes and I want to kind of come back to and I'm not using all the time, I, an LTS is more appropriate. Or at least it has more of a you know a higher chance of being chosen. But yeah, yeah. if you've got a, a work machine that you spend most of your time on that you you want to you know you don't mind keeping up a little bit, uh, but otherwise you can kind of fit 
to your workflow very nicely. Arch, tumbleweed, something mm-hmm. like that could be really nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let us know. Let us know what you pick. And then I'd also love to know how it works out. And now it is time for Le Boost. Before we get to The Boost this week, uh, I wanted to just cover a quick update from the Albi developers. That's the Get Albi extension that we mentioned quite a bit. I'll probably cover this further on Coder, so just a real brief mention here. But guys, if this isn't what I've been hoping to see, the Albi team has officially released a new tool. It's called Package Zap. And it gives a way for Node.js developers to easily fund the packages they're relying on for their project mm-hmm. using the Lightning Network. Uh, Albi has figured out a way to use the Noster Connect protocol, the as NWC as it's known, to connect Noster clients to Lightning wallets. They're going to use the same now for this Node.js plugin. And so it could be a way to send some value back to open source developers. Now it's Node.js, so it's early days. You know, it's like, okay, doesn't really move the needle for me personally. But some of the big stories we've heard about these massive linchpin projects with one developer who's been chronically underdefunded, those were Node.js packages. So this is great to see. <laughs> Package Zap, PKG Zap. And uh, I hope this is the start of, of something that could really revolutionize paying open source developers for their hard contribution. We sure need something. Mm-hmm. And with that, we get to our first boost this week, and it comes in from some guy named Brent. Hey! 189,426 sats using Podverse. He says, first time booster, long time hoster. (laughs) I think you mean hoser. Hey, Uh, he says, I'm sending in 50 euro boost bounty from Craftnix for packaging Paul's Nix release. I love this community. Right. So this was the $50 euro note that you got. You've now successfully converted it into sats and boosted it into the show, mm-hmm. which then splits right back out to you again. Well, only part of it. <laughs> yeah. I just, I yeah, tease. I, I want to say like our community, our community found a way to package some Nick stuff while also boosting into the show as a thank you, as a boost bounty. It's like, we never thought this would ever happen. It's just, you guys are inventing all sorts of things. So thank it you for really being great. creative. That is fantastic. And it completes the circle. Tech Geek boosts in with 132,832 cents. I hoard that which your kind covet. I finally gave in. I'm going to try NixOS. Yay. I've been hearing about it so much for so long, I'm going to have to try it out. I'm a long-term Fedora user, and I still love that distro, but I'm going all in. Keep up the good work, and uh, drop the first digit in my boost... To get my zip code. Uh-oh. Get the map out, Wes. Oh, good. You brought it. You came prepared. All right. So, looking on the map, where is uh, Tech Geek at? And let's see. So, we dropped the one, three, two, eight, yeah. three, two. Yep. Carry the two. Looks like that's uh, Orange County, Florida? Somewhere uh, Orlando, Lake Hart? You know, I've always wanted to visit Jupiter, Florida, just because of the name. Oh. thought, how cool would it be to do a podcast from Jupiter, Florida? So, if Tech Geek, if you got any Florida hookups for RVs, because I know how busy it can be and crowded it can be down there, let me know. And lo- let us know how the all-in with Nix OS goes. Yeah, yeah. It's also, a little hint, self-hosted, I think it's 103, the, the one coming out uh, the Friday of this episode. Uh, Alex follows up on his Nix OS journey, and it's uh, it's positive. Hybrid Sarcasm boosted in 97,000 sats from Castomatic. Hey, this is my first boost from Castomatic using my Albi wallet. I'm just keeping that boost train rolling. 
Hashtag one million sats challenge. Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. Nice. First boost from Castomatic Hybrid. Nice to hear from you. Cairo comes in with 66,666 sats. I wonder if he realized he was nailing that total because it's across two different booths using Podverse. And Cairo, I got this just for you because I know I'm always saying your name wrong because I think it's actually pronounced Kiro, which rhymes with hero. But here's why I always get it wrong. I, 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 I thought you're such a solid booster. I would go find this station identification for you so you at least knew what I'm talking about all the time. KIRO FM 97.3, Tacoma, Seattle, your world. See that? How do you not get that stuck in your head, right? <laughs> so that's your, there you go. Kira, you got your own boost sound, sound bite now. I'm pretty sure they had an idea because look at these sats mounts. Five, four, three, two, one, and one, two, three, four, you're five. You're right. You're right. Well, uh, they're right. I just got my first paycheck for a new job. I landed a as a senior full stack dev. Congrats. I made a big impression during the interview when I mentioned I've been daily driving Linux on my personal computer for almost 10 years. Nice. Interviewers do love that. It shows initiative and willingness to learn. And that's really what you want from a candidate. He says the 10-year-old Linux romance started and has continuously been fueled over the years thanks to all the shows on Jupiter Broadcasting. Also, LogSec is absolutely the best. Hey, Wes, you got one. Woo! I finally moved away from plain old Markdown or text files, which is what Brent and I use, like animals. Mm -hmm. But it's so much more powerful, so much easier to locate things. It is a game changer. Glad oh. to hear it. Yeah, Logsy gang, check in. Now, are you ready for this one? Uh, I think I know where this is. This one's got a Canadian flag, so make sure you open up the upper area of the map there. Is that oh, a moose? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely a moose. <laughs> this is a postal code in Toronto. Oh, great. Uh, shout out to Toronto, Kiro. Thank you for uh, boosting in. Oh, uh, we call Love it, it Toronto. Oh, right. Of course. Right. We, we need the translation. Thank yeah, you, Brent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The Dub Stopper boosts in with 60,218 sats. Boost! Well, it's a zip boost. We'll come back to that. I give up. My long-running server, running Ubuntu, finally broke. Oh, no. After years of tinkering and figuring things out as I go. I wiped that machine, and I'm installing <laughs> NixOS. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> this box runs Home Assistant in a virtual machine, Plex, and other services I rely on, but also my fiancé. She came home from work and was like, why doesn't the light work? And that was it. Yep. I need NixOS for when I break things. It is nice to go back. Yes. I. Oh, it's so bad when you when you have systems that don't work correctly. Like, I, I call that, like, the dad shame moment. Like, when they go to hit the button and the light doesn't turn on. Or the other day we had Jellyfin crap out on us during a movie. At the last 20 minutes. No. During the no. during the finale, right. and it was it was a long movie. That's rough. Feel you, man. They do go on to note that Ubuntu served them well, but the install got cluttered in the previous projects. It never got cleaned up or fully removed. So that's especially why they're looking forward to the Nix OS journey. Also, probably going to switch my laptop to Nix as well. I just need things to work. You know, this is such a familiar story that I heard like at least three times at the meetup that we had in Berlin recently. It's, this is, this is the new way. This is the way. Oh, and that was a zip code boost. Oh, right. Was it? Okay, good. I'm glad you caught that. There, here's the map. Yeah, I need my supplies here. It's so big. I know. I don't know why we got the big one. We don't, we don't need to make a map for it. That was such a bad idea. Blanket for it was way better. Uh, how about 
Evanston, Illinois. Yeah, all right. Hello, Illinois. How's it hanging over there? Let us know if you got it right. Our dear listener, listener Jeff, that is, boosted in 25,000 sats and simply wrote beer popcorn hearts. Coming in hot with the boost. <laughs> I mean, I love those things. I love those things. And we love you, Jeff. Magnolia Mayhem comes in with 10,484 sats from the podcast index. I've been stacking stats lately. I just had to boost in on this one. It's less of a tip and more of a prompt, but I feel like Tor has been getting less attention than it deserves over the last few years. I know there's been some bacon fried that certain pe- by certain people, but I never put much weight on those claims. There's plenty of evidence that it's safe enough. I've absolutely had to frame everything in terms of a tip. I'd say, well, people should know about Tor socks. From what I remember, it's a utility that you can spin up a shell that wraps any application launched from it in Tor. Though it's been some time since I actually played around with it. Also, this boost amount divided by two times 17 plus one is the zip where I was when I first joined the old time JB IRC wow. back in 2015. How about that? Right. Well, I got to make up for this drunk from the last time. Yeah, I'm on it. This is Clark County, Nevada, Las Vegas. Hey, come on. Hello, Las Vegas. Boy, I bet it's warm there right now. Zagatak boosts in with 9,999 sets. Coming in hot with the boost. In response to your challenge, I didn't even know this till Monday night after listening to the podcast, but the newer GLINet routers with firmware 4.2 or higher have tail scale built right into the app section. There you go. 4.2. That's the version number you need. I did not know that earlier. Thank you, Zach. I'd be curious if Jellyfin works the way you're thinking. I might try it. I may try it myself the next time I am out with my next cloud server away from home. Well, I definitely can confirm that Jellyfin over Tailscale has worked great on my phone. So like when the wife and I will go out and get uh, every now and we'll get a burger at the best place in America to get a burger, Skagit Valley Burger Express. And the problem is, is they got like, because I've talked about it and, you know, maybe because the food's good, I don't know. They've gotten some uptick in customers. And so for some reason now the line's a lot longer. So what I do is I show up with the old phone and the jellyfin and we just watch some no. who's the boss. Yeah, we just watch a little who's the boss while we're waiting for our food. <laughs> it's great. So I can confirm that part works really well. We got a boost in from Hesnep, 2000 Satoshis. Hey, I think I heard that Chris uses Nix and Android now. Oh, I didn't know if I'd mentioned that. Okay, oh, I th- good. I think you mentioned it. More than twice, actually. Oh, okay. Well, how about combining them? The Nix Android app forks the UI from the Termux app, but replaces the Termux distro with Nix OS. It was actually my first experience with Nix. I had a long train journey without a laptop, so I used the opportunity to read up on Nix and set up a basic config with Home Manager. I even got NeoVim with GitHub Copilot set up and used it as the ultimate autocorrect to prototype a project on my phone's little keyboard. I haven't used it much since that initial tinkering, but I find it really useful for running occasional scripts on my phone with the Nix run command. Oh, and of course, it's packaged on F-Droid. All right, well, I'm installing this right now. Yeah, this screams West Payne. Um, I actually came across this just a day ago. I don't know if it was because I saw Haz's boost come in or if I just, I can't remember, but geez, I love this. This is so, 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 so slick. Definitely want to play around with this. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the F-Droid implementation. Any, uh, any ideas what would you would do with it first? 
Well, first thing is to get Docker running on your phone, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking like the troubleshooting utility, you know, all the command line scripts, all the things in Nix. And because like, you know, Nix run and flakes. Yeah. Oh, that's so flexible. Are you saying I should run a pie hole on my discarded Android phones with bad batteries on them? Would you do that? There you go. You better try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Just not use them as home servers? Right. <sighs> Beowulf cluster. The show mascot, the Golden Dragon, comes in with lucky 6,666 sats. Cross two boots. You're right. So I found out that you can top off your fountain wallet with your fountain address right from the Zeus app. I'm now boosting with power. Uh, can't wait to see you guys at Linux Fest Northwest. Side note, Zeus wallet app, very good software. High, high marks from Chris, and you can connect it to your own private node or you can connect it to your Albi account, and then you can use it to move sats in and out of your Lightning or out of your Albi account and all that. Because all this stuff is an open network, you can stack stuff, you can use different tools. It is so fantastic. Also, Golden Dragon saying, should I design a challenge coin? Yes. We very much want a challenge coin. We just never get off our butts. And he'd like to know what our recommendations are for clothing coming to Linux Fest Northwest. He's wondering about the weather. <laughs> Dress in layers. I would, yeah, I would prepare layers because in October you can have beautifully sunny days with a light breeze and you can have gray, cloudy, rainy, awful because we're kind of on that transition. You'll probably see some nice fall colors. It's generally a very pretty time to be here. Like if, if I was only going to be here in the Pacific Northwest when it's nice, I would stay till the end of October and then I would probably get out of here like November and, and I would come back. Like February, April-ish. And yeah. that is the window of time where like right now, this is one of the best places in the world to live. You know, it's mid-70s. It's warm in the studio, but it's mid-70s. It's It hasn't rained in two months. It's just gorgeous. Uh, it's about to rain, though. And in October, we're transitioning out of that. It's going to be potentially rainy. Could be nice. So just kind of prepare for layers. But you know? not like super cold, you know, 50s yeah. and 40s. Yeah, a t-shirt that you throw a flannel over, right? Because you want to fit in when you're in the Pacific Northwest. I would like to observe that uh, this is the second set of boosts that totals the devil's Satoshis, 6666. You mean the lucky Satoshis? I don't, oh, I don't know what sorry, you're talking sorry, about. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Lucky yeah, Satoshis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just a quick note. This episode is doomed. Limiting factor, my favorite general offensive unit, boosts in with 16,000 sets. Pew! My privacy tip is to install only the bare minimum of apps on your phone, since we know that they're used for data collection and fingerprinting or shoveling targeted ads down your throat. Just use the crappy web-based version, and as a bonus, the web version sucks, so you won't spend as much time on that social media platform. Plus one to this. Honestly. Yeah. I will add to that as well that you should audit the apps you have installed every once in a while, like they're probably a collection of apps on there that you're not using anymore because you used them, I don't know, two, three years ago or something. I have not had the Facebook app installed since the iPhone 7. Um, and I, you know, when I switched over to Graphene OS, because I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I run Android now. Oh. Um, yeah, never, never even considered the Instagram stuff, never have installed TikTok, never installed Facebook, never, because if I, for some reason, needed to, I would just, I'd open it a private browser tab in Firefox on the mobile device. That is a great, easy tip limiting factor and my wife does this too to limit her facebook use she deleted the app and she just uses the website because it does kind of suck she hardly ever uses it totally works 
Grounded Grid boosted in with 13,760 sets. <laughs> Greetings from the birthplace of IBM. Though, that's still kind of a sore subject around here. I've been meaning to make a zip code boost for a while, so have some demographic info. Computers are mostly a hobby for me. I also enjoy amateur radio with vintage and home-built equipment. I use Linux at work as a diesel mechanic to eavesdrop on CAN bus traffic and run a digital lab scope. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I, I'd love to know more about that. And is it only diesels you can do that on? Yeah, I knew I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. I know there's lots of goodies on that CAN bus. Uh, all right. Did you uh, bust out the map there? IBM seems to be based from Endicott, New York. New York, huh? New, New York. York. All right. All right. I just won't get my salsa from there. Eric comes in with 2,500 sats. Hey, guys, I finally installed NixOS on my main workstation. When it finally arrives, oh, he's going to be. Arch is great, but the cruft is starting to get on my nerves. I'm also going to try out that Git Tui after you guys recommended it, and I'm loving it. Wow. The Nix train is going strong. I know. It's really something. Thank you, everybody who boosted. We can't get to all of them this week for time, but we had 17 boosters, 22 boosts in total. Amazing. And we brought in 644,743 sats for this episode, which we're absolutely thrilled about. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. This is gaining momentum. And it's something that is extremely gratifying because if you look out over the next few years of where this medium is going through massive transitions. And so to be absolutely aligned with our audience is extremely rewarding and it's motivating too. If you'd like to boost into the show, we'd love to have you participate. You can keep your podcast app. If you like, just get Albie, get Albie.com. You top it off in app or using something like the cash app or strike or I don't know, RoboSats. go crazy. And then head on over to the podcast index, look up Linux unplugs. You'll find our entry over there and right there. Boom embedded in the web page they got a boost little thing ready to put a message in your center right in there it's great you're ready to try the revolution and we've got some podcasts here on the network they're going to be taking advantage of these features very soon go get a new podcast app at podcastapps.com something like fountain or podverse or castomatic whole new world of experience and features in there and a brand new way to discover uh, new shows too so those are all at podcastapps.com either route you take you can boost into the show and we really appreciate the support either through the boosts or from our members at UnpluggedCore.com. Well, how about a pick? NVID2E is an NVIDIA's client which fetches data from NVIDIA's instances and displays a user interface in the terminal. Yeah, that's right. How about some YouTube in the terminal? Yes, please. Also, I think gives you some options to do some downloads in there yeah. and whatnot. Uh, open, view, edit, and save M3U8 playlists. Oh. Yeah. Uh, it also queries the NVIDIA's API and can select the best instance for you. If you oh. want, I'm not sure you can point it at yours if you'd like. Seems pretty handy, and uh, maybe it'll look like work when you're just watching something in the terminal. Yeah, you know, that's the nice thing about it, is it always looks legit and official. But NVIDIA's is another great YouTube front end that you can also self-host, or you can use one of the community-run instances, and then this layers on top of that. Which is so cool when you have all these open-source things just building and tying yeah. off each other. <laughs> it's so great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. You know, this is a massive, massive topic. It's been, I've never been more nervous uh, for a show probably since episode 500 because like, how do you do something like this justice and how do you make it appealing to people who don't think privacy is an issue? Mm. And then how do you actually manage to list all the tools and go through all of that without leaving something out, which I'm sure we did. So please linuxunplugcom slash contact or even better send a boost in and let us know what we should have covered 
Maybe we do a part two down the road, or if nothing else, just a real brief follow-up next week with some of the biggest ones we missed. So we'd really like your feedback on that. And of course, we're looking forward to seeing all of you at Linux Fest. It's coming up in October, linuxfestnorthwest.org. They're going to be looking for community sponsors soon. So if you are out there and you're a business that's in the open source space and you want to get a booth and help support Linux Fest Northwest, check out their website. They're going to have details for that soon. There's going to be a call for community sponsors. Uh, this has been a discussion that we've been having internally. Traditionally, the revenue for Linux Fest to like pay for the venue and everything has come from commercial sponsors. And with the Fest taking a year off and just kind of the market the way it is and just kind of my priorities, we just really think in total community supports the way to go. And there's really reasonable pricing for an open source project to get a booth and have some good representation on the floor at Linux Fest Northwest. I don't know if they have the info up yet. I probably should have checked my messages this morning, but it'll be at linuxfestnorthwest.org if you're out there and you think you might want to participate. As for us, we will be live again next Sunday back at our regular time, noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. We'd love to have you hang out with us in that mumble room. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. And when you're ready to go try out some of these apps, linuxunplugged.com slash 522 has got you all taken care of. Links are all up there ready to go thank you to our members unpluggedcore.com we weren't live this week but you still get a very special members production just for you in your members feed or alternatively as a member you can get the ad free feed lean mean and tight version of linux unplugged all of that's at unpluggedcore.com or support all the shows at jupiter.party as for us i just want to say thanks for listening maybe there's someone out there that you think could use some of these tools you'd like to share the episode we always appreciate that and we hope to see you right back here next Sunday.